Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're in chapter 22, and if we get through 16, we'll have um, finished up this section, arbitrary as it may be, to make sections here in Proverbs. And in chapter 22, verse 17, we'll be introducing the words of wise people or words of the wise, um, a collection of uh, uh, wisdom sayings, um, s- some of whom are authored uh, not by Solomon, but by others. So we'll dig into those um, toward the end of this class period if we get there. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. <coughs> and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, again, the chapter break at 22 is arbitrary and probably ill-placed here by way of 30 Proverbs uh, or excuse me, chapter 21, verse 30, that proverb there. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Tied in directly with 31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So look, no intelligence or wisdom, no strength or might of man is going to overcome the Lord. Then into chapter 22, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. There are things much more valuable than money, and those are the things given to us by God and sustained in us by God. Those are the true riches. Um, More on money and connection, obviously, to the Lord. So verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So, again, we could file that under the sort of grouping, the Lord is watching, lots of Proverbs on that basis, because that, again, is how one conducts oneself wisely, is recognizing that all of our deeds are done in the Lord's view. Okay, so we're just going really fast because we've covered these before, and I'm just trying to get us a quick recontextualization here um, before we get into verse 5, which is the new one. So... The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So the slow down and walk circumspectly. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in this life. And that's where we ended last week. We talked about that the temporal blessings that God bestows and the eternal blessings that God bestows. And they are a reward Uh, for good works, here in view specifically the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor of life. Whenever you have that phrase, the fear of the Lord, we remember that's at the heart, that's at the thesis and theme of the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to humble oneself before the Lord, afflict oneself before the Lord. Um, this is uh, riches and honor and life. We talked, you know, again about that being temporal realities and uh, eternal realities. So the true riches here in, in view would be the gifts that God gives to his church. Those would be the most 
priceless and precious of the riches and honor and life, those things that are bestowed to us by God in the divine service. Of, of, what, of what monetary value is your baptism? Of, of what monetary value is the baptism of your child? I, I mean, I would, I would instantly sell everything I have and drain everything I have to have one of my kiddos baptized. Um, these, are, these are truly priceless gifts. And in a, I mean, in, strictly speaking, they're temporal gifts, aren't they? They're earthly gifts. They're for this time and right now. We're already we're rich. We have these treasures that Christ gives to the church. Of what value is that, uh, that coin that gets pressed upon your hand or in, gets slid into the slot of your mouth as if you were a bank? Of what value is that little, that little coin-shaped bread that is the very body of Christ uh, that was given for you on Calvary? and is now made present tense, given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Of what value is that? What, what would you put? I mean, I think, you're, I think you see the point. Um, what, about, uh, what about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Of what value are they? And we'd probably, because we're by nature not very loving, and by nature very self-centered, we don't often consider um, the priceless treasures that are around us in the pews unique creations of God, called by his Holy Spirit, redeemed and cleansed by the blood of Christ, elect of the Father before the foundation of the world, co-heirs with us. And yes, we're all in a state of humiliation. (laughs) So, you know, hairs get put out of place and um, stupid things get said and weird idiosyncrasies and uh, personal affects come through. But we can't let these things dissuade us from the truth and the reality that all around us are the very saints of God and and of what value are they. So, again, I think we can meditate. When we think of temporal blessings and eternal blessings, it's helpful that we not make too blunt of a distinction and say, well, temporal blessings are stuff like uh, money and cars and house and education and job. Those are all temporal but many theological, spiritual gifts of God come to us, and in the proper sense, come to us uh, temporally as well. So, great treasures here on earth, as well as then the promise that we will receive all the more in heaven. Because, and think of this organically, what is the culmination of baptism? The heavenly reality of the resurrection of your body, and your, the ontology, the change in your being from a sinner and the son of your earthly parents to a saint and the son of your heavenly father. That's the culmination of baptism. So you have a, you have a down deposit, as it were, temporally for something that um, matures, comes to maturation in, uh, in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. So this down deposit, if you just hold on to it, will become infinitely more valuable and these temporal treasures become eternal treasures, so to speak. Okay, well, I've probably uh, belabored the point a bit there. We'll move on then to the new material. So at verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. So thorns and snares invite um, some 
meditation. So a thorn, that would be like what an insurance company would call uh, an act of God. He causes the thorns to grow. He causes the rains to fall, even if it's too much. Um, Causes fires to burn, that sort of thing. But what about snares? Not so much. There's there's an act of man to set a trap, to set a snare. So thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Um, You have the wrath of God in the fallenness of creation, the curse of creation. You can certainly meditate on that with the thorns. Remember, that's the language used for the curse of Adam. You will have bread by the sweat of your brow. Earth will produce thorns and thistles. Okay, and then snares on account of the fallenness and wickedness of humanity. Snares are laid all around the road to entrap those who would come along. So whoever guards his soul. So again, this has to do with, and we've seen many Proverbs with this theme, the idea of caution and the idea of guarding. Uh, there's, there's so much, you know, this very earthly, secular, satanic, really, frankly, wisdom of, you know, seize the day, live for the moment, uh, just do as you will. Uh, whatever you feel is good, go for it. Pursue your own dreams and desires. I, I can't tell you. I, if, I, if I watch TV, I don't watch TV all that much, but you can hardly sit through a football game or something without all of this stuff being pumped into you uh, on the program itself or in the commercials. It's just what the world thinks, and it's just definitively the path of foolishness, according to the scriptures. So to recognize that you need to be on guard and specifically to guard your soul. That's what's in view here, and that's at the heart of wisdom. So whoever guards his soul will keep it, or or will keep far from them. So, you know, again, there's a little ambiguity here, descriptive or prescriptive. Guard your soul, and you will stay away from the thorns and snares. Um, Descriptive, sure. Um, but also, I, I'm not opposed to reading this prescriptively, that guarding your soul is walking circumspectly, walking with the light of God's word shining, so that you're avoiding thorns and snares. You ever walked into, have you ever hiked into a thorn bush unawares? <laughs> That's what's in view. Not paying attention. You pretty much do it once, and then... You're not going to do it again that day. <laughs> okay, let's go a little further then. and uh, Yeah, this will be, be a good place to pause after 6 and see if you have any thoughts or reflections on what I've said. So 6, obviously one of the most famous Proverbs. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, curiously, as I was looking in the uh, commentary, there's like more ink spilled on this one than any others. There's all kinds of ambiguities in the text and uncertainties as to what's really meant. I think a lot of what we can, we, we can clarify a lot if we look at this not so much as a promise, but as a proverb. There's a difference between a proverb and a promise. Um, proverbs aren't ironclad statements of reality, ironclad statements of cause and effect. Um, They're general truths, 
and um, they're meant to uh, be meditated upon. So that's how I take this one, and I think it alleviates all, so much of the ambiguity. This is advice clearly for children um, and for parents. Parents, on the one hand, obviously are spoken to directly, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And then for children, of course, reading this and reflecting on this, this is what your parents are trying to do. So, a nice little meditation on the fourth commandment here, honor your father and your mother and the two sides of that. Um, Father and mother are to be honorable and children are to honor them. So, what is the way he should go? Obviously, if you tear this outside of context, it becomes ambiguous. But in context, it's very clear that you're to train up your child according to the scriptures. And as those scriptures write themselves into the heart of the child, he's not going to depart from it. Even if he wanders a bit, he'll come home. That's the goal. That's the goal of all our teaching. So we've lost this, and I know this is a painful reality for a lot of folks. It's kind of painful for me. I mean, so much of it. So much of being a Christian in the 21st century is dealing with the painful reality that we've lost so much and what Christians of previous centuries just took for granted and just had and just understood that this is the essence of the faith. We're like, wait, what was that? I was supposed to be doing that? And um, one, of, one of those things is that the head of the household, uh, specifically the father, is charged with catechizing his family. Um, That includes wife and children, and any other members of the family who happen to be there. (coughs) Now, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) there's no no curriculum laid out in the scriptures. Do X, Y, and Z, and you've got your bases covered. That's never laid out, uh, much like the command given in scripture to fast. Um, How you fast is left up to individual person and context, but you do indeed need to fast. Uh, Same with, you do indeed need to uh, train up your children in the way they should go. There's an art involved there. Um, There's no thus saith the Lord on the curriculum. But that's what's in view. And so uh, the catechism, in fact, is written at, at the head of each of the six chief parts of the catechism. You remember those six chief parts? Maybe not. So Ten Commandments. Oh, by the way, we're coming up on pre-Lent and Lent. I've got all kinds of things to invite you to. So Lent used to, uh, Lent used to be just called fasting time. And uh, instead now, it's, it, generally speaking, comes from something like lengthening, like the days are lengthening, like, oh, it's getting brighter longer. I mean, it's a little paltry, isn't it? Relative to fasting time. So Lent is a time to spring clean your soul, historically speaking. Um, and it's a time to actually, so the, so the Sundays of pre-Lent, which are coming up the next three Sundays, are times to prepare. And so you want to prepare um, along those lines of increased prayer, increased almsgiving, and increased fasting. So Jesus says these, it'll be the text for the Ash Wednesday service, it's always the start of Lent. He says, when you fast, when you pray, when you give alms. Don't do so like the hypocrites, but do so in just this way. And so there you have a dominical command to do these things. Um, Lent is also just a wonderful time to mortify the flesh. One of the easiest ways to do that is to jump into an extra Bible study. Um, Or if you're already doing a Bible study, jump into something like, uh, not next weekend, but the weekend after. On Saturday, I think it's the 2nd, 
at 4 o'clock. We're going to do a two-hour session. Now we're going to have a break in the middle. We're going to have a two-hour session, and it's, it's laying the foundation of our faith. And we're going to do that through Lent right up to Holy Week. So it is a perfect opportunity. Um, you know, listen, I, pastors need this every bit as much as, as lay people. You need to re-ground yourself in the basics. You need to rehear those things and have those very foundational gifts just written upon your heart once more. So that's an opportunity for you to jump in and join. Um, and then likewise, uh, um, the services, the midweek services coming up. So we have a soup supper and come have the soup supper and come to service. So we're looking to increase, we're looking to spring clean, we're looking to tend to the weeds that have gotten overgrown in our lives or um, get back in the gym or whatever motif you want to use there. Um, they're all biblical scriptural motifs. Paul talks about training uh, as one preparing to run an Olympic race. Do we take our Christianity uh, this seriously? So circling all the way back to the point, um, if the six chief parts of the small catechism, if, you, if this making you uncomfortable, take some time as we move toward Lent and into Lent, to memorize what the six chief parts are and then to rememorize them. <laughs> so first chief part, the Ten Commandments. Do you know the Ten Commandments by heart? Second chief part, the Apostles' Creed. Could you say it on your own uh, without the whole church saying it on Sunday morning? In the Our Father, I'm sure you can say that. Luther, as is his way, says, if a Christian doesn't have the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer memorized, he ought not go to the Lord's Supper. So uh, take that to heart and write those things into your heart. Uh, He says the same about the words of institution, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we did the first three chief parts, Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Our Father. Um, What are the last three? They kind of go in a unit, don't they? Yep, fourth is baptism. What's after baptism? Confession absolution, which is a return to that baptismal grace. And then last but not least, the Lord's Supper. Those are the six chief parts. And so the last of those chief parts that Luther says ought to be committed to the heart are the words of institution. Um, Christ's words that we speak over the bread and wine. Uh, By the power of his word, it affects his body and blood present for us Christians to eat and drink. Okay, so yeah, that's... um, At the head of each of the six chief parts in the catechism, do you think it says, A, as the pastor should teach his congregation, B, as the pastor should teach the confirmation class, or C, as the head of the household should teach his family? C. It says C. It says C. So... That's what the catechism is created for. That's what the catechism itself says it's for. The catechism's true and proper place is at your dining room table. Not in the church, not a confirmation class. Now, I know I'm dreaming. But the ideal would be that when, we come, when, the, when the young ones, the seventh graders, come into confirmation class, they already know it. They know the six chief parts, not only what they are, but the actual contents. They know it by heart. What would that allow me to do? If every father and every head of the household had done his job and the children come into confirmation already knowing the text, what would that allow me to do? 
expand and deepen and build priceless treasures upon that foundation that has been laid. But if that's not been done, what does confirmation look like? Well, come visit. (laughs) Come visit. Because it looks like a pastor trying to shore up things that should have already. looks like a pastor trying to pour a foundation and then build on a wet foundation um, when this, the foundation should have already been laid. And it, looks, and it, and it, is, a, it is a widely known problem amongst us as pastors. We're in constant and continual crisis over, I'm doing confirmation wrong. When the reality is you're not. You're just laying a foundation that should have been laid long ago and should have been laid formally by the head of the household. So I know this stuff is, you know, pinches and hurts. Um, just understand that I'm pinched and hurt by it myself as an individual, not as a pastor, but as an individual Christian. These are things that we've lost through the passage of time and the change and shift of culture and the attacks of Satan. These are, these are things that we've lost that used to just be obvious and standard and known. So train up your children the way they should go doesn't mean bring your kids to Sunday school on Sunday and call it a day, even though probably for more than a few generations, that's what's passed. Um, You want to set up a time in your, I mean, this is basically a daily reality. Now, you're the head of your household, I'm not. You want to take Saturday off? Great. You want to take another day off because you've got to get to work too early? Great. You've got to take another day off or you know, a different day off because you've got a meeting that night? Fine. But nonetheless, as a head of the household, you want to find a regular time in which you're teaching uh, your family, your household, um, the basics of God's Word, the basics of the Christian faith. There's no easier tool to do that than the small catechism, but of course, you can go well beyond that in all the scriptures, right? In fact, I mean, good case to be made that the book of Matthew is uh, really the first catechism. And so you could you do no wrong by going through the book of Matthew with your family. It's a fantastic way to uh, approach catechesis. If the world keeps going the way it's going, that's what I'm going to be doing for our new members class. It'll just be a class on Matthew. Come on this day, I'll expect you to have read these four chapters. We're going to talk about them. <laughs> Because increasingly I'm running into people, and God be praised for this, that are coming to our church and not knowing um, even the rudiments. Not knowing, like, what is the Trinity? Not knowing, um, what is the parable of the prodigal son? Not knowing uh, the Our Father by heart. And some former evangelicals coming into our church not knowing the Our Father by heart. Because you'd never pray anything wrote like that. Uh, So they just have become utterly ignorant of it. Okay, so raise up a child in the way he should go, or train up a child in the way he should go. We're back at 22.6. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We have much, much ground to um, regain here in this regard. Um, What what can you do if those days are past, if the kids are outside of the church? Uh, I think be absolutely forcefully blunt about getting them back into church. Being nice and winsome just doesn't do anything. I've, I've sat for years and years and years and watched niceness and winsomeness not do anything. Um, why don't you go to church? Is it because you hate God? Or is it because you just hate the things of God? Have a conversation. Well, I don't like you very much. Well, I don't like that you don't go to church. Well, I really hate you. Well, at this rate, you're not going to spend eternity with me, so think on that. 
need to get a little blunt and a little sassy. Winsomeness is entirely overrated and basically does nothing. So uh, I encourage you along those lines to, to be spicy and be forthright. I mean, time, the time is short and the days are evil. And then also pray. I, and I know that this can become a cop-out or sound like a cop-out, but of course if you're in regular prayer, you know it's not. Um, pray. Include in your daily prayers uh, your children and, and your children's children. That, the power of prayer, and there are um, fantastic testimonies from the history of the church of children who have um, been converted or reconverted, brought back to the Lord or brought to the Lord on account of the faithful prayers. Um, and fasting. Prayer and fasting frequently goes together um, of the church and of family members. Remember when Jesus is uh, casting out the demon and um, the disciples can't do it? And afterward they say, why couldn't we do it? And he says, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. I'll submit to you that 21st century Lutheran theologians don't have a clue what to do with that. I think the clue is, what does God's word say? Let's try believing it. <laughs> let's, let's try believing it. And then worry about whatever damage it has done to our theological system. Worry about that later. Maybe if the word of God is damaging our theological system or our theological understanding, it's that that system and understanding need to be damaged, need to be taken away and replaced by something that's more faithful. Okay, so prayer and fasting and prayer and fasting um, in connection with uh, what can be done if, if we have um, failed to train up our children in the way that they should go. A wonderful, uh, a wonderful additional way you can you can do that is um, consider consider ways in which you'd serve the youth here at the congregation because there's lots of opportunities for that too. Too early to make the plug, but Vacation Bible School is coming. It could be a Lenten discipline, <laughs> teaching the little ones. Certainly a mortification of the flesh. Okay, let's pause there, because I've done a ton of talking, and we haven't got too far. But let's, uh, let's see if you have any thoughts or any insights, anything you want to chat about. On number six? Yes, sir. Could it also mean that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. hand does something different than the eyes, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My children have different talents than mine. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to grow up. I'm sorry. Um, I was saying that I don't want them to grow up doing what I did mm-hmm. because that's what I do. I want them to take their talents that God's given them and to explore where God wants them to go with those talents. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of uh, some yeah. men, they get kind of predisposed to thinking their kids are going to edify themselves by doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I may be, I may mistake your point. Um, if I you submit a correction, if I'm if I'm speaking uh, in a contrary way, I don't mean to. Um, the uh, yeah, right. So that's part of the rub of training in the child in the way he should go is that ambiguity. Okay, we know generally speaking, as I've been teaching, according to the Word of God. But then to recognize that there's a vocational aspect of this. Um, Father's particularly in view here that in looking at the um, unique gifts that God has given to your children, it's not a one-size-fits-all. 
so that you would look at um, one son or another son or one son and a daughter, and you would see that God has blessed them in different ways, and there is a path that each of them should go that's unique to how God has created them. Is that a complimentary thought yes. to your point? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and really, really wise there. I, I know I harp on this from time to time too, but one of the worst things that we did generationally, we told a generation or two of kids, you can be anything you want when you grow up. Hogwash. I wanted to be Michael Jordan. Still waiting. <laughs> wanted to be Joe Montana. Still waiting for that, too. Uh, you can't be anything you want. Our kids have um, IQs, um, and some are lower and some are higher. Oh, great. Maybe it's higher than yours. Maybe it's lower than yours. Who cares? You gotta, but as a father, you want to know that and recognize that and deal with that. Um, some of our kids have been given unique gifts or um, unique weaknesses. They're not going to overcome it. Some kids are built for school. Some kids aren't. And here in particular, um, boys in view, uh, because boys have the biblical responsibility of, of taking a wife and, uh, or living in... Living in um, Chaste virginity uh, to those who are given that gift, but that's a slim, slim sliver uh, of folks. That is a, basically a supernatural gift. And then to those who haven't, to take a chaste wife and have children and, um, and uh, support those children. So that angles the way you're going to treat sons and daughters differently. You shouldn't treat it one size fits all. That's, um, that's feminism, not the scriptures, and not reality as you'll hear in my sermon if you didn't already. Um, we're, de- we're dealing with a war against reality. Uh, so to recognize what reality is and then act, live accordingly, that's the goal. So yeah, our, our daughters, it's fine if they, if they want to um, contribute to the household income in one way, shape, or form, fine. I think women have always done that. But to raise our daughters with the view that um, the, the highest honor God bestows is to be a wife and a mother. And that's at the heart of femininity, biblical femininity. That's at the heart of God, the creator, making women. That's the highest honor. Um, you'll look long and hard for a scripture that says, uh, train up your daughters so they can be good employees. Or anything remotely in that ball, ballpark. You'll look long and hard for um, admonitions to, uh, hey, train, train up your daughters so they can be great CEOs or secretaries or floor sweepers of the office. But what you will find recurrently and repeatedly is that God creates women and their highest honor is to be wives and mothers, to love their husbands and love their children. So... I mean, you know, that's kind of like you get the one who made you telling you what he made you for. Now, you can reject that if you want, but I think it'd be pretty foolish. Okay, so that's a great point is, to, is for us as parents and even as grandparents. We can have an influence on this with grandchildren. Um, when, when our kids inevitably struggle with hey, what should I do, or what should I study, or I'm at a, a crossroads, instead of just kind of like, well, well, what do you want to do? Follow your dreams, which have a tendency to land, end up with them, land, their dreams like leading them to your basement or to back, back to living with you. 
So maybe not the best advice there. Um, don't follow your dreams, but what are, what are your opportunities? What is reality that God has set before you? Now, how do you thrive in that reality? Um, how do you thrive amongst the choices that you do have? Even if those aren't to your liking, well, get over it. We're dealing with reality here. We're not dealing with fantasies and dreams and you can be whatever you want to be and um, the kind of Disney reality that's landed us in the disaster we've landed in. So, yeah, really, really good to think about um, training up a child in the way he should go is looking at um, each individual kiddo and what God's gifted them with and helping them find that path. Your kid hates math. Don't force them down an engineer track. Um, your kid hates physical labor. Uh, well, you should make him do a little of that because it's good for him. But yeah, but don't tell him he's going to be a construction worker. Um, there, of course, if you think back to previous times where people were less mobile, all of this was really, really easy. You're probably going to do what your dad does because he's the one that's going to teach you that. And if not, it's some special unique arrangement or some special unique opportunity locally, but it's pretty closed in what your options are. It's death by too many options in the modern world. So to close it up and say, hey, you're not going to go to university, which university is a huge risk. I'm just riffing on, but I don't care. (laughs) I'm sorry. We're a little far afield. University is a huge risk, as you well know. It says you're training up a child in the way they should go, and you're catechizing them for, eight, for uh, what would it be, 18-ish years, and then you send them off to be indoctrinated by uh, academics who are entirely hostile to everything you've been doing. And then we just go, why do they fall away? Why, why'd you send them into the mouth of the lion? Uh, or, or do so without any circumstance or any warning whatsoever that there's profound danger to your mind, your body, and your soul uh, going to university, right? And it just is. It's a reality. Um, Christian universities are of some help, but if you know anything about sinful nature, they're not that much of a help. Okay? So keep that in mind, too. Um, but we should, you know, you, we should look at university in a really scrutinizing manner. A, do you have the chops to actually thrive and progress in this? And B, is it helping you towards your end goal? I mean, what have, what have we done for a generation? Again, I know this pinches and I know this hurts. It does me too, individually. Oh, well. You know, we've got to get over our feelings. You go, to, you go to university going like an entire generation. Hey, everybody goes to college. What are you going to college for? I don't know. What do you want to be? I don't know. What are you going to go and do while you're there? Learn as little as possible. Drink as much as possible. Oh, what could go wrong? <laughs> so to help our kiddos out with higher education, and, and I'm, I'm doing this with my own children too, it's like, why do you want to go to college? What is the end goal? And does going to college, going to university, help you achieve that goal? Right? That's the question. So to be really circumspect in that regard, too, because what we have going on in the public education system today, all the way up to, through the university quote-unquote experience, is basically a, a satanic kind of uh, catechesis against the faith. 
So if we're going to go try to plunder the Egyptians, we need to do so very circumspectly and very strategically and very carefully. All right, it's 10.05, and I've only offended all of you a handful of times, so I'm off to a great start. Um, yeah, are we done with train up the child in the way he should go, or do you have any other insights there? Yes, please. I was just going to sum it up with a, something that maybe you said in your sermon, because I'm always taking sermon notes in my Bible, right? So it was under the word train, and it said, pack their shoots. They're going to be dropped in enemy territory. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I didn't say that. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to prepare, that kind of goes back to the language of guard. To have our children understand that the world is not an innocent place. The world is not a neutral place. not spiritually neutral. We have all kinds of fallen angels, fallen beings of various powers and ability. Their entire goal and purpose I don't know if they sleep, but work with me. They wake up every morning and think, how can I ruin as many people as possible? Um, the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis is just such a great motif because it's like you've got a demon assigned to you. I mean, as sure, like, sure as God assigns a guardian angel to you, there's a guardian demon assigned to you, and his job is to get you to our Father below, <laughs> right? As they say. Um, but to take, that, to take that reality seriously, that your soul needs to be actively guarded and there's not, you're not entering, a, there is no spiritually neutral space. That's uh, very important. So, so yeah, strap on the parachute, um, strap on the full armor of God, recognize there's going to be a battle, um, recognize that, yeah, you're going to fall. Um, you're going, and, you know, don't need to fall in a major way, but you're going to sin know where the medicine is. Confess and be absolved and get back on your feet. Uh, there's a defeatism in modern Lutheranism that is sort of like, well, you're obviously, I mean, let, let me just take a really concrete example that I just utterly reject now. I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I feel like I've come a little bit closer to sanity on this point over the course of my ministry. But it's like, oh, it's unrealistic to think that people are going to get married in their 30s and have led a sexually pure and decent life up to that point. I totally understand that sort of worldly perspective on things, but let's acknowledge it for what it is. It's a worldly perspective. As Christian parents, we shouldn't be telling our children, oh, well, this is, you're probably going to have some major fall. We should be telling them, stand, and here's how to stand, and here's strategies to stand, and I'll help you stand. And um, that should be goal number one. So, yeah, that's um, just some random thoughts on training up our children in the way we should go that's very countercultural and, and very contrary to uh, several generations of how we've been raised and how we've come to see the world. As the world gets darker and more obviously satanic to us, what I'm saying is going to increasingly make sense if it doesn't already. Okay, on to seven. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Oh, I didn't realize it was going to be such a sledgehammer of a section here. This is just bad news after bad news. Um, and, you know, because we live in a, we live, our entire society is built on usury, our entire society is built on lending and borrowing. 
going to just go buy your house outright? Not your first one. <laughs> what about your car? Maybe your first one if you're working and saving up some, but probably not then. The, uh, the loans and the borrowing, the credit cards, all of that stuff. Um, we're very much, you know, when Americans start singing around July 4th, all their proud-to-be-free stuff, I mean, I just, I just can't even take it anymore. Free in what sense? Remember the Jews that are like, we've never been slaves to anyone, and we're like, you dolts. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we're land of the free. How's that mortgage? And that car loan? And that credit card debt? So there's no freedom there. And that's exactly, I mean, and, and honestly, yeah, I'm going to probably offend some more people, but that's great. Um, the, yeah, the property tax thing. I mean, you really ought to think about that. It's disastrous because the, the idea that the government can charge you, it's just criminal. They can charge you rent for the rest of your existence to own that property or to have your family own that property then becomes a liability. Can they afford the tax bill to keep it? Nope, better sell it. Preferably to BlackRock or one of these big conglomerates who are going to further poison the world and further make it impossible for normal people to live on a normal working class salary. We've got to start realizing these things and, and if nothing else at this stage, speaking out against them. Even if it's just kind of spitting into the wind, that's how all, all change starts with the mouth. So that's where we'll start, and we'll try to break down and rebuild. But yeah, this is, um, this is to be taken, uh, and I know this pinches, and I know this hurts, but the borrower is the slave of the lender. It's true. Of course, our world is so wicked, and those of you who are well-versed in finance are much more well-versed than I. You know, I, I already know you're seeing this in a more complicated way. The uber-rich just live permanently in debt because it's a way of scalping the system. It's a way of uh, not ever paying taxes because you're not ever getting any income because you're not ever um, owning anything. So you can shelter and work your way around. But it's like, what is, that, what is that ability predicated upon? It's predicated upon usury. It's predicated upon going away from the gold standard where your dollar fiat currency is no longer based in reality. And now it's just fictional. Now you can print it up and... That's what we're all undergoing right now. So the government all gave you, you know, nice uh, COVID checks. We all, of course, eyed them with suspicion. Because it's like, I can't remember how much they were, but it's like, here's $1,000 now. We'll be printing out money and taking 10000 over the course of the next two years. Oh, isn't the government wonderful for giving that handout? So we've got um, wicked, wicked thieves uh, at the top of our society um, and, of course, uh, just the, sort of the baseline of our economy, however you want to look at that. Um, and that's, uh, that's something we should recognize then from the wisdom of God, the borrowers, the slave of the lender. Um, the rich rules over the poor. It is, an, it is an evil, wicked part. Now, contrast that since we're in our final moments here. Contrast that with uh, what the New Testament speaks of Christ. Christ, who was rich, became poor for our sakes that we might become rich through him. So you've got the antithesis of the world embodied in Christ Jesus. Christ has everything he wants, all the true and genuine riches. 
It's such a beautiful image uh, in the new heavens and the new earth when the new Jerusalem descends. Gold, which is like the most priceless thing, is the asphalt of the new heavens and the new earth. It's like, look at that. that that's for our feet. <laughs> so, a complete upside downing, <coughs> complete upside downing and reversal of uh, what true value is, what, what true wealth is. Um, but Christ then is entirely different from the wicked. Uh, who worship mammon in this life, that he has all of that and sets it aside and empties himself and takes on the form of a servant. He's born to uh, Mary and Joseph. We know by virtue of their sacrifice in the temple when he's presented that it's the sacrifice of the poor. So he is born into poverty. Uh, Though he is rich, he becomes poor. Um, There are other indications that growing up, uh, he's not part of a wealthy family. Um, He's the son of a carpenter. And then also um, throughout his ministry, as I mentioned last week, much of his ministry is sustained by benefactors. So um, Christ is not uh, this sort of homeless, disheveled guy living under a bridge like a vagabond. That's one image of Christ that's utterly false. Um, But the other side is that Christ was kind of like a uh, middle-class, semi-wealthy guy. That's also not true. Right between those two. So to contemplate how he who was rich became poor, that we might become rich in him and rich in the true wealth. So that just shows you the difference in the spirit of Christ versus the spirit of the world. And again, it's kind of one of these things of like, you're going to have to serve one power or the other who is worthy to be served. And Christ is the one who's worthy to be served. Let mammon and all the wealthy wicked of the world perish a thousand times over. I could care less. They're not worthy of being served. They're worthy of mockery and derision. Who's worthy of being served is the one who laid aside all his riches and stripped down. You know, on the cross, that's the thing. He stripped of everything he owns right down to his garments, right down to his very body and his very life. It's all taken from him and poured out to enrich us with those true treasures we were speaking about at the beginning of the class. So there's a, there is a king worthy of our worship. There is a Lord um, worthy of our fealty not the ones of this world. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.